0: This is The Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, September 28th. I'm Virginia Allen.
1: And I'm Doug Blair. Mental health can be an incredibly difficult topic to talk about. During the COVID-19 pandemic, lockdown measures, masks, and social distancing caused spikes in mental health crises and anxiety. On today's episode of The Daily Signal podcast, we're joined by John Seidel, author of the new book, Finding Rest, A Survivor's Guide to Navigating the Valleys of Anxiety, Faith, and Life. He joins the show to discuss his mental health struggles during the pandemic and offer advice on how we can live a happier, more mentally stable life.
0: And don't forget, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and a five star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to our top news. Homicides rose by 30% in 2020, according to data from the FBI. This marks the largest increase in homicide deaths on record from one year to the next. The FBI began tracking homicide numbers from year to year in the 1960s. In 2020, there were 21,570 reported homicides. The homicide rate contributed to an overall 5 percent increase in violent crimes in 2020, but nonviolent crime fell by 6 percent last year. The largest age group of victims and offenders involved in these violent crimes were between the age of 20 and 29.
1: During a live Monday event at the White House, President Joe Biden received his third dose, or booster shot, of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Biden made remarks on the safety of the vaccine, as well as boosters, and encouraged more Americans to get vaccinated. Here's the president via NBC News. You're safe and we're going to do everything we can to keep it that way with the boosters. But let me be clear, boosters are important, but the most important thing we need to do is get more people vaccinated. The vast majority of Americans are doing the right thing. Over 77% of adults have gotten at least one shot. Biden continued his remarks by criticizing unvaccinated Americans and vowing to mandate vaccines wherever he had the power to do so. About 23% haven't gotten any shots. And that, uh, that distinct minority is causing an awful lot of us, uh, uh, an awful lot of damage for the rest of the country. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That's why I'm moving forward with vaccination requirements wherever I can. While the president was adamant that booster shots were a good idea for some Americans, the science surrounding them is contentious. Last Friday, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky overruled an independent advisory panel by recommending a third dose for Americans 18 to 64 with high risk for COVID at work. Per Stat News, panel member Pablo Sanchez expressed his concern with the amount of people the panel was recommending receive the booster shot, saying, we might as well give it to everybody. The CDC's current booster recommendation policy only applies to people initially vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine and not those with the Moderna or Johnson & Johnson shots.
0: The Biden administration is taking action to protect illegal immigrants who were brought to America as children or teens. Today, the Department of Homeland Security is presenting a new rule to revise the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, also known as DACA. The program is being changed and revamped after a federal court ruling this summer determined that the program was illegal. The new DACA program is very similar to the last, but has a few provisions to guard it from future legal issues. The new rule gives 60 days for legal review of the DACA program and for public feedback. But the core of the program remains the same. DACA recipients will be protected from deportation and allowed to work within the U.S. Recipients of DACA must reapply for the program every two years. 600,000 people have been approved for DACA since former President Barack Obama created the program in 2012.
1: A federal judge ruled Monday that John Hinckley Jr., better known as the man who shot and wounded President Reagan in 1981, can be unconditionally released from a series of restrictions next June. Hinckley, now 66, has been living with his mother in Williamsburg, Virginia, since 2016. Following Hinckley's failed assassination attempt, he was confined to St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in the nation's capital for nearly 35 years. In his ruling removing the restrictions on Hinckley, U.S. District Court Judge Paul Friedman said if he hadn't tried to kill a president, he would have been released unconditionally a long time ago, per Fox News. In a statement praising Judge Friedman's decision, Hinckley's lawyer, Barry Levine, said Hinckley's mental disease is in full, stable, and complete remission, and has been so for over three decades. He then added that, I would hope people would be able to see this as a victory for mental health. People who have been ravaged by mental disease with good support and access to treatment can actually become productive members of society, per CNN. Now stay tuned for my conversation with John Seidel as we discuss his new book, Finding Rest, A Survivor's Guide to Navigating the Valleys of Anxiety, Faith, and Life.
0: Americans use firearms to defend themselves between 500,000 and 2 million times every year. But God forbid that my mother is ever faced with a scenario where she has to stop a threat to her life. But if she is, I hope politicians protected by professional armed security didn't strip her of the right to use the firearm she can handle most competently.
1: To watch the rest of Heritage Expert Amy Swear's testimony on assault weapons before the House Judiciary Committee, head to the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. There you'll find talks, events, and documentaries backed with the reputation of the nation's most broadly supported Public Policy Research Institute. Start watching now at heritage.org YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. Our guest today is John Seidel. Founder and president of the Veritas Creative, a digital media consulting and content creation firm, as well as author of the upcoming book *Finding Rest: A Survivor's Guide to Navigating the Valleys of Anxiety, Faith, and Life*, which releases on September 28th. John, thank you so much for joining us.
2: I am so so excited to be here with you, Doug, and uh, thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, we're very excited to have you on the show as well. So, I wanted to start out a little bit with your story. So. On your website, you're very open with the fact that you have anxiety issues and OCD. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you better tell our listeners a brief timeline of your story to finding your diagnosis and then how you've learned to live with your mental health struggles?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think growing up, I always realized there was something a little different um about me you know i would i would i would get kind of stuck on things if you will that you know quote unquote normal people wouldn't get stuck on right like Mm. like uh, uh thoughts or or ideas or or you know struggles that would just continue to kind of plague me um i think there was this there was this general kind of baseline of of where I would feel like if you've been to the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone, you know, where you're kind of like on the edge of this cliff and that feeling of when you're looking down and you're like, oh my gosh, this could go bad at any moment. Um, that was kind of uh, uh, my baseline. And so, uh, you know, I was talking to someone the other day. I said, I, man, I have no idea how I made it through high school and college. And, and I went to college and, New York City right at the King's College where you know the the kind of um uh mecca if you will of rush and hurry and anxiety um and so i i got married and um the the first few years of my marriage were just so difficult and you know that's yeah. not abnormal right but um it just kind of got to a point where the little things that I couldn't get over were really taking a toll on, on my wife and, and our marriage. And there's, there was this one episode where, um, we were living in a loft in downtown Dallas and, uh, there's kind of this cool hip coffee shop underneath. And, and we decided to go for a walk. We were going to walk downtown on a Saturday morning and, Uh, I said, uh, all right, babe, I, if you could please get the coffee and I'm going to run to the restroom. And by the way, remember, I hate Splenda or excuse me. Yeah, I hate Splenda. Please don't put Splenda in my coffee. I think it tastes like dirty sock water. So, you know, that Splenda is not sponsoring this podcast. Um, And uh, I'm a sweet and low guy. I like the pink. Give me the pink, uh, the pink packets. And so I return from the bathroom. I, I I take a sip of my coffee and I almost spit it out. And it's there's Splenda in it. And and it was just it's one of those little things that's just so simple that and I just couldn't get over it. And not like you know there's just there's just, if you have anxiety or OCD, like people listening will understand something small like that, just ruining your entire day. And if you love someone who has anxiety and OCD, that will sound very familiar. And so I got to that point and, you know, it's either later that day or the next morning. You know, I'm, I'm sitting across from my wife, who is just broken. I mean, she's just sobbing and saying, "Like, listen, I, I, I'm in this for the long haul, right? Like, we we did our vows and um, we are gonna stay married, but I need to know if like, is this what the rest of my life is gonna be like? And if so, like, John, you need to get help. Like, this isn't normal, and think seeing someone that you love so much just sitting across from you and I and I was I was working in the news business at the time and and so you know there was a lot of things kinda contributing to this overall anxiety and I, I just said you're right I gotta get help and so I got help. I, I, I made a, a, a psychiatry appointment and um got into the first the first one I could find and I kind of, I go in there and I I explain everything that's happened, that's going on. I mean, if we do things out of order, it drives me crazy. I mean, if I send an email to my boss, I read it 50 times and he goes, you know, "Uh, well, this is a pretty simple one. You have GAD, generalized anxiety disorder with OCD and OCD is a type of anxiety. It's kind of a subset. And, um and it was one of actually, you know, the most freeing days of my life. And, and, and there are some people who are like, I I don't understand why, how is that a freeing moment in your life? And it's like, you know, I'm a big proponent. And if you kind of, you know, read, uh, uh, the Bible, you see that like naming things gives you power over them. You kind of know what to fight, you know, what to, what to, you know, how to battle it. Right. I mean, you see that, that back in the Genesis story, right. God gave, uh, uh, man, the, uh, job of naming the animals. And it kind of was this, this this signal that they have dominion, right? They have dominion over the animals by naming it. And so in, in a sense, my, my dominion over my diagnosis started that day where I was finally able to name it and know what I was fighting.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that story. I think that that's a really important way to look at it is that this diagnosis gave you the power over your your illness. So on that note, I sometimes feel as if there's a stigma attached to seeking mental health care in America. Sometimes we don't want to express that we need that type of help. Do you find that that's the case kind of overall? And if it is, why do you think that's the case? It's absolutely the case.
2: And I think we even saw that just this summer with with the whole Simone Biles thing. You know, it broke my heart, Doug, that, that, you know, Simone kind of pulling out and saying, you know, I need to focus on my mental health. Like, here's what's going on. Was met with a, it became in some circles like a partisan issue, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the the wussification of America. This is this is you know people that are just wanna just wanna quit, you know, um, and I, I just was like, you know. Uh, that's, that's ridiculous. Right. And so, um, that's, that's just a recent example and I found it in my own life. And I think that that prevented me for a long time, kind of wanting to, um, tell everyone what was going on. Right. When I finally Mm -hmm. did come out, uh, I wrote this article called, you know, it's time to tell the world my secret. And, and I told the world my secret and that was it. And, and there was some backlash if you will, from people who, um, just didn't understand, you know, why, why I would go take medication. You know, I'm a person of faith. Like, do you not have enough faith? And, um, but also the reaction that I got from people who had been suffering in silence for a long time was incredible. And so I think Doug, that like, we are in, um, we're in a culture and a time where, we are seeing people finally be okay with not being okay. We are mm-hmm. seeing people say, like, listen, I, I, I'm going to tell you, like, this is what's going on with me. And there's actually more freedom and power in in doing that. And I think as we do that more, I think you're going to see more of these people, the Simone Biles of the world, the Naomi Osaka's, the Dak Prescott's, you know, the quarterback for the Cowboys that are doing it. And I think, and I hopefully, you know, I hope we we start seeing it more in the political Arena. There's this great book that I recommend to people called The First Rate Madness that talks about how some of our best leaders from JFK to Abraham Lincoln to Winston Churchill were all people who struggled with mental health. And that the fact that when you struggle with mental health, health you have an outlook on the world that actually is so much better, so much more realistic than the quote-unquote normal people like the Neville Chamberlains of the world, right? And right. and so it, it's actually a gift. And so I've started seeing it as a gift. That doesn't mean it's something I still don't have to fight, right? But mm-hmm. um, seeing it for its, sometimes its good qualities.
1: Right, and I think that nobody's going to argue that it's, it's a bad thing to be more aware of your own mental health and to take that into consideration as you proceed through life. So now that we've gotten a bit to know about your particular journey in this. I want to move on to your book. Um, In the book, you kind of talk a little bit about anxiety and bad mental health, during the coronavirus pandemic, obviously, there were yeah. uh, stories after stories after stories of people who were suffering these mental health crises as a result of public health restrictions or, you know, fear of COVID, all of these things that sort of added up to create an environment that was not great for people's mental health. So your book, Finding Rest, is set against the backdrop of these pandemic-related mental health crises. So with that in mind, what inspired you to write that book now? Why now?
2: Yeah, it's you know, it's so interesting that um I, I technically actually got the contract for the book January of 2020 is when I signed the contract to write this book. And so, you know, back then it was, there was, there was a a few articles maybe in the times or whatnot talking about this mysterious Chinese virus that was circulating, you know, no, everyone's like, Oh, that's just kind of a a great, you know, interesting story. Um, I guess not great story, but uh, you know, interesting story about something that's going on way, way off our shores. Um, But, but, when I started writing it, you know, you couldn't help but but bring in a lot of the stuff that has been going on, that I, I would just say had been going on, but here we are again, right, where where stuff is, is resurging um, again. And I think more so than ever, Doug, I am talking to people from all walks of life. I mean, parents, teachers, pastors, uh, CEOs of companies who are coming to me and saying, Listen, I never struggled with anxiety and now I'm like I'm like a raging anxiety alcoholic. Like I don't mm-hmm. know what has what has happened. And so I try to I try to frame it like this. I um Back uh, a few years ago, I was taking this big motorcycle trip. I live in Texas now, and uh, we are going to drive down to Big Bend National Park. Mm. And so me and my brother-in-law, believe it or not, you have to, like, practice to ride your motorcycle that long, I learned. And so, you know, you have to get used to sitting, uh, you know, on this motorcycle for hours on end right. without a break. And so we started doing that, and I I got to the point, like, one weekend where I, I got off the motorcycle, and man, like, I had that my back like the skin on my back was just really irritating me and my wife you know I talked to her about she goes oh you have a heat rash I mean it's summer in Texas you have a heat rash yeah okay that kind of makes sense next day I wake up like it is so bad like I'm Mm. walking around the house without a shirt on because I can't stand anything to be touching it and so um, a a couple days later my buddy and I were at a church function where we were volunteering to clean up a school before school started And he he can tell that I'm in I'm in pain. He goes, "Hey, are are you okay?" I said, "Man, I I my skin like something is going on." He goes, "Well, let me see it." So I lift up the back of my shirt, and he goes, "Oh," he goes, "You have shingles." Oh. (laughs) Like, what? He goes, oh, yeah, I've had it twice. Like you have the you have the the band across, you know, the nerve line in your back like that's shingles. You need to go to the doctor. Sure enough, like I'd literally go to the walking clinic that day. The doctor's like, how old are you? And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. She goes, no, you definitely have shingles. And so I tell you that because of this. As you may or may not know, the shing- shingles is the chickenpox virus that has laid dormant in your system since you've had chickenpox. Anyone who's had chickenpox will have. The shingles virus inside of them. And it, a, it it kind of awakens during times of stress, or as you get older, as your immune system breaks down, it kind of surfaces. And so that's what, you know, the, you talk about the backdrop to this book, a lot of people, it's like anxiety has been there, just like the chickenpox virus, right? But mm. then as we've encountered these, you know, these really stressful times, these, you know, the term that we've all heard, unprecedented times, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of awakened this anxiety within us that then we don't know what to do with, you know? And so that's why like the book couldn't hit at a better time, if you will, for this, for people for me to say, like, hey, this is this is what this is what it is that you're going through. Here are some practical ways to deal with it. And by the way, if you uh, are a friend or loved one of someone with this, here's how you can help them. Um, and and here's how you can can, you know, talk to them about what's going on and understand it as well. So the, like you said, the backdrop couldn't be any um, any more relevant. And, I'm, you know, the, the early feedback is people are just like, thank you. I'm, I'm finally understanding what's going on.
1: That's really good to hear that people are are taking it positively. I guess on that note as well, I'm curious what your experience with the pandemic was like and if there was anything that you took from your book that you kind of found very specifically helped you as you dealt with the the mental health issues that came as, of course, of uh, pandemic-related restrictions and the pandemic itself.
2: You know, Doug, I'll never forget where I was um, about that time in March and, you know, It's still it was like we just got word that all of a sudden the flight restrictions were in place and the president was going to be addressing the nation that evening or one of those evenings right around there. And I thought, oh, crap. Like this is bad, you know. We were selling our house at the time. Within days, you know, the buyers pulled out. We were stuck with the house that we thought we were going to sell. We had to pull out of the house that we hadn't accepted offer on, and it was. I, I had that moment of like where my anxiety just raged, right? Mm. And um, it was one of those practical, and and I was still in the process of writing the book as well. Um, and it was one of those where you kind of have to be like. Uh, okay, uh, if you're a doctor, you know, I, I need I need to diagnose myself here and realize what this is and kind of take some of the steps that I talk about in the book. And so, I, you know, the prescription that I gave myself was everything from some practical mental health exercises, practical physical exercises, as well as to, you know, as a person of faith, some of the spiritual stuff that I feel like goes on as a result. But, um, you know, the other thing that that I will say that has been, just, just really kind of frustrating to me, and this is this is on both sides of the aisle. Is that one of the things that I feel like just us anxiety sufferers, as well as those who maybe not are aren't clinically diagnosed, but are finding themselves in this position, mm-hmm. is that Doug, there's just such a um, a lack of hope that we're being offered, I think, from, from both sides, right? You know, you have people that are really just a lot of people dealing in fear and, and anxiety uh, on a very basic level is fear of the unknown, Right. Yeah. And so it, what happens is your fight or flight response kicks in. And, you, you you know, I talked about being on the edge of that cliff. You don't know what you're going to fall. You're not going to fall. You're going to go here. You're not going to go here. And so, you know, one of the things and I have an article coming out soon on this is what I'm hoping that our leaders, all stripes, all political persuasions will do is. Please give us more hope. And I think that's easy when you look at the current administration. It's like, hey, give us more hope. But, but even on some of the the the, the conservatives and Republican side is don't just don't just counter that the fear that's being peddled there with more fear of your own. Like mm. give us hope. We have such a deficiency of hope. And so I think that's one thing that as I've reread through the book so many times since writing is that, is that man, we just need more hope.
1: I think that's such a great message. Hope is obviously the thing that keeps you going in, in a lot of these situations that can seem very seem very dire is if you have hope that things will get better, then it keeps you going. Now, one of the things that you've actually mentioned on that note is your faith and how it is such a crucial part of your life. So your website, you write, um, the book calls to account the church for its historical treatment of mental health and lays out thoughtful, needed paths for the body of Christ to become a refuge of hope for the anxious. On that note, how do you feel as if the church has dealt with mental health? And then what steps do you think they need to take to either improve that or maintain? Or what steps do you think the church needs to take?
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. And I'll and I'll I'll start by by telling you just a, a quick story. My my niece lived with us last year for a time, and um she she told me, she said, Hey, uncle, um, can you? I think I just had to like change a, 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 a turn signal or something. So I go and I, I open the car door, I change the signal, and I turn the car on to make sure it's, it's working. And, and as I turn the car on, um, there's a check engine light. And I said, uh, How long has this check engine light been on? And she goes, Oh, it's, I don't know, it's been on for a while. And I said, Well, well why didn't you tell me about it? I could have helped you. She goes, Well, I was just kind of hoping it would go away. And, and, and honestly, Doug, I feel like that's how the church has handled mental health is that we're not going to address it. We're just kind of kind of pretend it's not there. Or, or if we do kind of recognize it, we're just going to hope it goes away. Right. Right. And and I think it's been such a detriment to us, you know. Some of the greatest, um, I mentioned even some of the leaders earlier, Winston Churchill and um, um, Abraham Lincoln, people who struggled with mental health. I mean, one of the greatest uh, 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 Reformation preachers, it, it, you know, went through this. Um, and and Charles Spurgeon, and Charles Spurgeon was, you know, wrote sermons on 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 being full of. Mel- Right. And so mm. this is something that's just not going to go away. It's in your pews. And um, I think the prescription, if you will, and that's one of the chapters of the book is a prescription for. The church is you. Is you have to start by recognizing it, and right. um, part of what I feel like that looks like is I talk about in the book in great detail, not just in the chapter about for the church, but even just as a sufferer, is what I call a proper theology of suffering. And I know that's kind of a heady term, but really it's this idea of like how do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with when bad things happen to us? Right, that we mm-hmm. are, are are struggling with. And you know, one of my favorite um, writers of all time, I named My son after him is C.S. Lewis Mm. and uh, I didn't I didn't name my son Clive I feel like that would be a little (laughs) but I did name him Jack as Tolkien uh, called him Um, but you know C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this in 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 the problem of pain um, for one and it's like the the you know pain and difficulty is what god uses you know he, he says it's in this really poetic term it's the megaphone that god uses to arouse a deaf world and so mm. what i have tried and and to really embrace is that like If, if I am going through this, it's not, you know, I haven't done anything to, you know, cause this, if you will. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, go to confession or, or repent of something, you know, yesterday. So now I'm being struck down with this or, you know, it's not that I don't have enough faith, you know, um, but if it's I'm looking at it as, man, this is this is God saying, I'm allowing this to happen, and there's a reason that I'm allowing this to happen. And and I'm some of those I'm gonna reveal to you, you know, uh, and some of them you may not understand fully. But um that's that is what I think the church needs to do a better job of is preaching and teaching this proper theology of suffering of like Bad things are going to happen to you. I mean, if you're a Christian, um, uh, by the way, like, like your Christ, Jesus, says you are going to have suffering in this world, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's so antithetical to some of the um, you you know, feel good messaging that we, we get from a lot of, uh, preachers these days of just like, Hey, everything's going to be all right. And it's like, no, like, you know what? I talk about this in the book. Like my stepdad and my sister died within, you know, two years of each other. Like, that's not all right, you know? And I don't feel all right about that. But I also know that like God is still at work and I've seen him at work in those instances and in the instances of my own struggle.
1: I think that's really good to be aware that there are going to be struggles in life. It's very difficult to acknowledge those truths, but the moment that you do, it becomes a lot easier to proceed uh, in life with those struggles. Um, Speaking of struggles, one of the things that I found so inspiring in doing some research for this interview was this story about a kidney transplant (laughs) to a total stranger. So you gave one of your kidneys to a man you had never met, and I just think that's – Unbelievable! I would love if you could tell our listeners about this story and, and why slash what you did.
2: Absolutely. Um, so, about two or so years ago, I am sitting in my office and um, I see a Facebook post from my dad, and he says, "Hey, I've got a friend who needs um, a a kidney, and the person that they're looking for needs to have type O blood." And if you're interested, just literally click on this link and you can kind of sign up and they'll be in touch. And in that moment, like it wasn't this like uh, this like should I shouldn't I, you know, kind of idea because my stepdad actually was a kidney recipient. So so mm. growing up, I was on the other side of my stepdad was going to dialysis three times a week, you know, literally having the life drained out of him. Right. And so if you're on a dialysis machine, it takes all of your blood out of you, filters Mm -hmm. it through a machine and puts it back. I mean, you're, you're, you're exchanging this, this old life for new life. And, um, and it's a tiring, tiring process. And I knew what it was like to just wait, you know, to wait and say, is anyone going to sign up? Is anyone going to get tested? And so I literally just went like right then and there and signed up for the form. And didn't really think about it until that night when my wife, you know, gives me the quintessential, how was your day? And I'm like, oh, you know, this meeting, did that. And, then, um, and oh, by the way, um, I signed up to be a kidney donor. <laughs> and she kind of looks at me and says, excuse me? Um, I, I don't recommend signing up to donate an organ without talking to your spouse first. Um, but it did work out. Um, eventually, that person that I signed up to donate for, someone else was in line and they tested, um, as a match. And so they didn't need me. And so that person had kind of gotten to know different people in the kidney community, so to speak. And she said, Hey, there's this guy in Mississippi. He's got five boys. Um, no one has been a match and not a lot of people have come forward to be tested. Like, would, would you be willing to at least put your name in the hat just in case you're a, you're a match? And I said, absolutely. And so long story short, like I get tested for him. We find out I'm a match. But just as we're about to do the uh, schedule, the surgery, he is um, someone who has diabetes. He is a black man, which, you know, that diabetes tends to ravage that community even more so. And so um, his diabetes got so bad that, that he started to have um, his toes amputated and then his, uh, his feet amputated and then his legs amputated. So that put the whole process on hold for about a year. And then finally, once he got healthy enough, um, they called me back up and said, you still willing to donate? I said, absolutely. Tell me where to go. I flew from Dallas to New Orleans. I met him two days before the surgery for the first time. And, uh, we did the surgery and now he is, um, healthy. They've, they've nicknamed the kidney, uh, him and his wife who are just a hoot. They nicknamed the kidney John John. And so (laughs) I get, I get regular text updates about uh little John John and how John John is doing. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, you talk about like, why do you do it? And, and, And so part of that is my stepdad going through that. And two, it's like, I feel like every one of us has an opportunity to give back. And I don't, I'm don't. i not saying that like every person has to sign to be a kidney donor, although I would highly recommend it in, in the sense that it's one of the most needed transplants, it's one of the safest, and mm-hmm. your life afterwards, and I can attest to this, is normal afterwards. I mean, I'm completely normal and healthy, right? Wow. Um, but it was just one of those very... <sighs> Just obvious opportunities that I feel like God put in my path to 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 do. and I did it and it's been one of the best decisions of my life. Ken is now, his name is Ken. He's now able to walk again. he He had prosthetics before, mm-hmm. but because of the dialysis, he was so tired he could never learn to use his prosthetics. Now he can walk again. Um, for five years, he slept in a recliner. Because um, the the fluid in his body would build up, um, and and he needed dialysis to take that out. But but if he would lay down in bed, he would just swell up. And wow. so now you got a guy who can walk again. Who can finally sleep in his own bed and and I don't say any of that, Doug, to like to make myself look good. I mean, listen, I'm I'm like right. not a perfect person, right? The, what I tell people is like, if I can do it as like a not perfect person, and I have my own crap in life that I am working through and dealing with, but if if God can give me that opportunity, He can definitely do something with
1: you. I think that that is a phenomenal story. And I I very much commend you for doing that. I think that that shows a a strong character that I I would hope our listeners would try to emulate. Now, uh, John, we are running a little bit low on time. So I wanted to give you one last question. And that question is, what advice do you have for people who feel they need help with their mental health, whether that's a result of the pandemic or just in daily life?
2: So I'm going to use some very wise words, and my six-year-old daughter would be so proud of me,
1: is that <laughs>
2: if you, if you uh, have watched Frozen 2, which if you are a dad to a young girl or a young boy, you probably have, and um, there's a song in there, and it's called, it's called The Next Right Thing. And it's this, this, this very beautiful song, and Kristen Bell, who voices Anna, talks about it in there, and she says, "You know, it actually came from a lot of personal pain and experience, because Kristen mm-hmm. Bell deals with anxiety and depression. And so um, my advice to you is, just like Anna in the film, is "Do the next right thing." right? I think sometimes I know. That, you know, my anxiety, my OCD, I, I call it the tyranny of the what if, you know, it's like, yeah, I, if I cut my finger, like it takes me about 30 seconds to, to me like dying of a finger infection and having it amputated, you know, <laughs> um, and so like if I break things into smaller steps and just do the next Thing, you know, and it's not just a Disney thing. Elizabeth Elliot, the famous um, missionary, you know, when her husband Jim was killed um, doing missionary work, she she adopted this mantra as well. When she went back to the jungle, she said, "Listen, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I just got to do the next thing." And so, like you said, if you find yourself in this you know anxiety ridden state, especially as a result of the pandemic, or maybe even before. Mm-hmm. Do the next thing. Right. And and so what I would encourage is talk to your doctor, talk to a counselor, talk to, you know, whether it's a, a, a spiritual person in your life, a spiritual leader in your life, a pastor or whoever, start talking and, 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 and find that next step. For some people that's going to the doctor, for some people it's like, I know I have this, so I need to think about if I need to get on medication or whatever it is, do the next
1: thing. I think that's really, really fantastic advice, John. Well, John, thank you so much. That was John Seidel, founder and president of the Veritas Creative, a digital media consulting and content creation firm, as well as author of the upcoming book, Finding Rest, A Survivor's Guide to Navigating the Valleys of Anxiety, Faith, and Life, which releases September 28th. John, really appreciate you coming on the show.
2: Listen, I I really appreciate it, Doug. And if people want to find out more, they can go to findrestnow.com. And that has all the information on the book as as well as
0: some
1: other tips
2: and and tricks to managing your anxiety.
1: And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal Podcast.
0: You can find the Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe.
1: Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all tomorrow.